Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 981 with Scott Shore. I have spent most of my career being, well, two things, open to opportunities that befell me and willing to work ridiculously hard to no limit. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by One Huddle, a coaching and development platform using quick burst mobile games to more quickly and effectively level up and fire up your workforce. With One Huddle, you can onboard new employees up to 45% faster. There was actually a study done by the University of South Florida that has proven that you can train your employees 45% faster. This just isn't fluff. This is real stuff. One Huddle, this new and improved way to educate your staff will translate into increased sales because you're creating more consistency with the guest experience in both front of house and back of house, i.e. menu development, just learning the menu, POS, limited time offers, food costs, things like this. To learn more, head to restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. That's the number one in huddle, like a football huddle. And when you use that link, you can get access to one huddles game shop, 3000 plus on demand skill games on everything from bartending to serve safe to the latest Amazon best-selling books and so much more. One more time, restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, Profit, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. This episode is brought to you by Mies, the culinary operating system for food professionals. Founded by Josh Sharkey, a chef and restaurant owner for the past 20 years, Mies organizes, shares, preps, and scales your recipes like never before. Plus, you can get laser accurate food cost and nutrition analysis faster than you could even imagine. If you're a chef, mixologist, consultant, operator, or generally if you manage a recipe intended for professional kitchens, Mies is built for you. Get started by visiting getmees.com slash unstoppable. That's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash unstoppable and as a listener of restaurant unstoppable podcast you can get two free months of invoice processing by signing up today with invoice processing you can link all of your purchases to ingredients in your recipes and the most current cost will be automatically reflected in every recipe revolutionize the way work is done in your kitchen with me's with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, managing partner of Edmonds Oast, Scott 
Shore, Scott, are you feeling unstoppable today? Absolutely. Dude, uh, and this is the first time here at Restaurant Unstoppable. You provided these amazing cigars. What are we smoking right now? Tell us about uh, this. Yeah, this is a, uh, a Tatuaje. Tatuaje is my favorite brand of cigar. They're uh, primarily Nicaraguan tobaccos. It's a Miami-based company. Um, but yeah, we're smoking the Tatuaje PCA 2022 release. This is a limited edition special cigar Thank you for sharing I man um, special occasion absolutely awesome stuff this is delicious by the way i'm loving it so we were actually this is the second time we hit record and started today's conversation i mentioned during the intro the first time around that you knew your cigars and you suggested we smoke one. And I said, heck yeah, let's make that happen. So thank you for that. I can't wait to dive into who you are and how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational, ball rolling with a success quarter mantra. What do you got for us? You got to want it. You got to want it. That sounds pretty accurate. Why, why is that the, the, the quote you chose for this? this Chef, afternoon? I used to work with Andy Henderson. Uh, Andy lives out in California now and got out of the game. But um, he helped. He open. didn't want it. <laughs> oh, he, he wanted it hard <laughs> enough when he, when he was here. He... Uh, he used to go by that mantra for him and his team. He helped start this restaurant, and uh, it was something he would always fall back on. I still painted on a wall behind some spices in the kitchen um, from his era, and you got to want it kind of sums it up. You do got to want it. Yeah. Uh, what is it? It is whatever your goals are, whatever you want to achieve. In the context of this business, it's, it is success and however you define that exactly i was gonna say it depends on success is in the eye of the beholder in this industry that's one lesson i've learned for for sure sure. yeah awesome way to get this thing started so what what is it for you i'm curious before we really got dive in well the edmund zost philosophy is uh always a bit of more is more we're a little bit of everything and we try strive i'm not saying we always succeed but we strive to be really good at being a little bit of everything which is pretty hard thing to do normally most places if you're really good at something, it's your goal to be really good at a particular thing, you know, whether it's your cuisine or your wine service or you name it. Um, awards tend to be given in certain categories, not always just an everything award. There aren't a lot of awards for everything. Uh, I'm certainly not seeking awards, never have been, but my point is simply that you tend not, to be judged. That, that should not be it. <laughs> that should not be it. But my point is that you tend to be judged on singular categories. You tend to seek singular category excellence. Edmund Zost, since its birth, was always focused on being everything. We wanted to have an outstanding cocktail program, great service, incredible food, a beautiful ambiance, a great beer program, as well as being a brewery as well. And so we, we make beer and we serve other people's beers. We wanted the wine program to be in-depth and really meticulously curated. We wanted to do all these things. We wanted to have indoor space. We wanted to have outdoor space. We wanted to do private events. We, and we do all this. We've been doing all of this for nine and a half years at this location. We opened a second restaurant and a bigger brewery for production up the street almost six years ago and our shop next door is incredible as well um for if you're a wine nerd it's a place you got to check out so being a little bit of everything and working really hard at doing everything well is the journey that i've always been on and that our company has always been on or still striving for that's not easy to do like that model you got to be a special person to try to be everything you got to want it you got to want it yeah i mean i I know that if I was trying to open a restaurant tomorrow, I wouldn't even, I would be afraid to do what you're doing right now. And to do it well is a testament, man. I would not recommend anybody try. (laughs) And I'm not saying that this is practical. And I'm not saying that we succeed at doing all of those things perfectly all the time. We make many mistakes and 
you know, you got to get back up and you got to try again. You got to want it. Yeah, I listened to Will Gardera's book, uh, Unreasonable Hospitality, on the way down here. And listening to you talk kind of reminds me of what he was saying, how they're trying to be everything. And in fine dining, you have to you have to be excellent at, at everything you do, down from, you know, first impression down to, you know, like coffee service. Yeah. You know? And that, that, what, that was the example they used is they elevated their coffee service because it was an opportunity to outshine their competitors. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, that's the only book I've recently read in the last few years. And um, Unreasonable Hospitality is the one you're referring yeah, to. Yeah. Yeah. We'll and um, it's phenomenal. It was extremely yeah. inspirational. And I love that, you know, his focus is something that we have from that book, not in the way he did it, not trying to have five stars or all those accolades, but in the way that he sought to push things forward above all on hospitality and service itself, rather than just how good is the food or how yeah. good is the coffee. I mean, he sought to be the best at everything, but that was recognized through really leading the the world, if I may be so bold as to say, being the best at hospitality and service side of it. And um, I found that book very inspirational. It truly is the only book I've read in the last couple of years, which is embarrassing, but I work a lot, don't have any hobbies, and don't have any free time. And um, <laughs> I don't... <laughs> if I have time to read, I have time to sleep, and I usually need to sleep worse. I only listen to audiobooks, man. I'm an audiobook person. If it's on an audio, like I'll read it, but... I gotta really have to want to read that book. Like I, I, I tend to listen, not read. <laughs> I respect that. Yeah, uh, but I mean, where does it make sense to start sharing your story? Because you never, you never had the goal to be a restaurant tour. That wasn't like on your. That wasn't on your roadmap when you were in your your earlier years. That's absolutely true. I don't know how you know these things about me. That's just Do a curious. little bit of research. That's <laughs> fifteen minutes with uh, Scott Shore, Charleston Magazine. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that's good prep. Honestly, yeah. uh, I never sought to be a restaurateur, never imagined being a restaurateur. It happened both organically and accidentally. You could say, well, how did it happen organically if you didn't plan to be? But I mean, it's organic beyond that. I have spent most of my career being, uh, well, two things, open to opportunities that befell me and willing to work ridiculously hard to no limit. And... Um, I had, I, I had extremely minimal restaurant experience before we opened this restaurant, but, uh, I knew that I was pretty unwavering in my ability to work really, really hard and not worry about my schedule, not worry about days off, not worry. I feel like the word or the words hard work together are very subjective. What is that? What do you mean by hard work? Give me an example of what. Paint a picture of what hard work is. I'm really trying to apply that to like more of like uh, everyone else's version of hard work than than my own because I think that people imagine hard work as long hours or physically grueling work more than more than I am deterred by those things. So when I say hard work, I'm I'm trying to kind of convey what I anticipate other people regard as hard work. For me, hard work is sitting still on a personal level. Uh, That's what we're talking about. For me, hard work is staring at a computer screen. (laughs) Sure. I'm not a big fan of that either. I have to sometimes, but that's not my strong suit. My strong suit is being present, you know, in our places, or if we talk about it as well, out on the road, because part of our growth and expansion was to go into larger scale brewing development. And we distribute beer in eight States and we do a lot of market work outside in those eight States as well. But I like to be moving. I like to be in it. I like to be a part of what we're doing. 
and um, I have probably a, a questionable valuation of time off by <laughs> society's standards but these if days. If you're doing the stuff you love, if you're surrounded with the subjects you love, I mean, I, the little research I did do, I knew that you, you were working with alcohol for a long time. You were in the distri- distribution, or not distribution, but uh, sales, right? I have worked in all facets of the alcoholic beverage yeah, so industry. Start? uh it starts before I was even twenty one um I first got into alcoholic beverage retail in Boston, Massachusetts. I ended up becoming a buyer and manager for a fairly high volume store in downtown Boston in a, a nice neighborhood with a very interesting clientele, you know a lot of elite clientele type folks that educated. Were, yeah, I mean, we had everybody, but we had a lot of those folks. Yeah, um, and that's where I started learning uh, about beer, wine, and spirits across the board. I got very into all three of those categories. What was it about beer, wine, and spirits generally that appealed to you? You know, the fascinating artisanal nature of the production, the variance in flavor profile and aromatics, the art, the labeling, the marketing. I mean, I really was captivated by all of it. And it wasn't just the drinking of it; it was. Everything, you know, up to before that, that really, I loved curating selections. I loved learning about the producers, what they were doing, uh, finding different flavors and smells that I hadn't experienced before. Delved real deep into single malt scotch whiskey, uh, eventually craft beer. Of course, wine was our biggest category. And um, that's really where I started learning everything that would pave the road for the rest of my professional existence. So... At this point in your in your career, are you saying this is what I want to do? I'm in. This is my jam. Or did you, were you not thinking along those lines yet? I think I knew I'd always be around that. I didn't know what this is. We're talking about a retail store. I don't know that I want to be retail forever. I don't know what I want to do with it. But I knew that I knew that I was into this stuff, and I, that wasn't going to change. Yeah. So what was after this this store in Boston? So I moved to South Carolina and uh, moved to Charleston. This is 2004, I believe now. It's about 19 years ago. And um, I moved here with like no career plans and no knowledge of the local landscape here. I'd visited here, but like talking vacation mode. I didn't visit here on a recon for employment. I was much younger, obviously, as one tends to be 20 years ago. (laughs) And... um, I was just going to figure it out. So I ended up doing some unrelated odd jobs that I just found in the newspaper classifieds while I kind of got settled. And then eventually I landed at a place called Ted's Butcher Block, which is still around. Of 2007. Course. Yep. And um, that, you know, the owner there, Ted, runs an incredible like butcher shop and catering prepared foods and everything there. And he had a small craft beer selection. And I uh, was hired there to basically make sandwiches but it quickly became apparent that i had a vast knowledge of craft beer and he quickly put me in charge of running their craft beer selection that even though it was very small was highly unique here in this market at the time of having a well curated kind of intense craft beer selection. this time is 2007 i mean across the country this is this is like at the like at the beginning of like the not the beginning but earlier on during this massive movement of microbreweries sure yeah we hadn't even popped the cap here yet, which is what they called the legislative change to increase the limit of alcohol in beer. So yeah. we were still stuck in like, it was something like 6% ABV. A beer yeah. couldn't be more than that. I mean, I graduated college around this time, 07. And I remember 
when I was in college, it was, you know, it was, it was Paps Blue Ribbon, Bud Light, Budweiser, Coors Light, Miller Light. It was still, that was the world of drinking around that time when, if you're, when you're in college. And I remember coming out of college and like really starting to get into like all these microbreweries and like it was really starting to catch foot around this time. Is that safe to say? You know the, the, the market way better than I Yeah, do, no, so. that's totally accurate. Yeah, yeah it, it was. It was about it was about to explode. Yeah. South Carolina was a little later than some other states because of those well, legal challenges. Good news for you, yeah, I kind of was in the right place at the right time, and then um, we uh, ended up opening our own independent craft beer shop called the Charleston Beer Exchange that opened in two thousand and eight, uh, and November of two thousand and eight, and myself and my business partner at that time and, and, and best friend, his name was Rich Carley, um, we saw an opportunity to do something with beer in Charleston in South Carolina because no one was doing it yet. In those days, you didn't buy craft beer in a gas station or a supermarket or have a bunch of craft beer bars. The times were different, like you just said. You're going to the brewery. Right. Yeah. And, and, actually, and actually, back then, it was illegal to buy beer directly at a brewery in South Carolina, wow. too. So you were going basically nowhere, but times were about to change. Is it of the level of, is it, I mean, I know in the South, religion had a big role on holding alcohol back. Is that safe to say? I don't want to speak out of place. I think that there was a variety of circumstances. I'm sure a lot of it's originally rooted in that. And then that has sort of transcended down into protections of wholesalers that have powerful lobbying Uh, arms that, you know, didn't want you didn't (laughs) honestly, (laughs) who knows? (laughs) It was, it was complicated and it was hard to get stuff. So we're in the right place at the right time. And, these laws change suddenly and no one's really caught on to what the heck's going on with craft beer yet. Um, and uh, we had all this experience from our time in Boston and our personal passion. We opened a little tiny craft beer shop called the Charleston Beer Exchange on Exchange Street, just off of East Bay Street and like way lower downtown, all the way down, like as far down as you go before you get to the battery almost. Um, and we thought it was going to be like a hobby side project and we still have to have day jobs and stuff but from the minute we opened the place was so busy that we were immediately overwhelmed i had to quit my other job and um we worked there full time and then we had to hire another guy and then uh you know it was it was really just kind of exploded this little tiny shoebox size craft beer store because we were delivering something to people not, not literally delivering but selling something to people that they really couldn't get in our market yet anywhere else times would change but at that time there was no game, this but is us. The same stop the shop that you're cook, making. You started with making sandwiches, and you graduated. Mm, to. Well, no. So I was making sandwiches at Ted's Butcher Block, yeah. and that Ted's Butcher Block remains a very successful like pillar of our community, uh, and uh, they do a great job. They're just down the road on East Bay Street. Um, I had left there to take another un- unrelated job in between that I was at very briefly, and then we started working on building out the shop we, we leased this little space and we had no budget we had no money we were broke young guys yeah. that had no business we did everything wrong. as you'll find out throughout the course of this conversation i do everything wrong um this was the first example of me doing something that was conventionally uh, improper we had no operating capital we yeah. when we by the time we opened the shop we had zero dollars so in the our shop bank you're account. talking about is charleson's beer exchange that opened 2008 Yes. Yes. Uh, so it was just, but I think I also love the fact that like start small, right? It sounds like that's what you guys were doing. It was, it was driven by passion and interest and hobby. Um, so it wasn't, I mean, that, that, that lets you show up in a, a, in a different way 
than a job, right? This is oh yeah, you know. Um, I think that's an unfair advantage. But what were you doing wrong? You said you had no money for for yeah. You're not for, supposed to open a business and have no money in your bank. You're supposed right. to have like I don't know some number of months of operating capital or years or something. S- like a minimum six months. Okay, we had zero. We <laughs> yeah. had zero. We couldn't pay rent the next the, <laughs> on month two. So yeah. we we opened with no money. We had to sell our inventory to pay a single bill. So that's what I mean by wrong. Yeah. So you didn't have that that operating capital to get started. That that six month runway of getting revenue moving and stuff coming. Nope. So how'd you overcome it? Because you, you did. We got lucky. It worked. People bought the stuff. People came in. People showed up in droves. I mean, when we on opening day, we had a line around the corner. We didn't expect that. How we big was the shop? Square footage? Oh, it was tiny. I mean, it's like the, the the landlord told us it was a thousand on the lease, and one day, like we actually kind of wa- like measured it off, like amateur <laughs> style, and we were like, "Can you curse on this podcast?" Yeah. Or not? And we were like, "What the fuck? This place is like five hundred square feet." <laughs> like we were totally duped. Went to the landlord, and like, "Hey, you lease this. This is a thousand square we can't feet, find the and this is not a <laughs> thousand square feet." And he he was like a lawyer that occupied the upstairs, and he was like, "Yes, it is." Close the door. I mean, and what are we going to do? We have no money. He's a lawyer. So it was like, we were, it was ridiculous. It was tiny. In in real life square footage, it was like probably between five and 700, even though we were duped into being told it was a thousand. Okay. Maybe he rounded up. I don't know. He added some <laughs> like back stairwell that wasn't inside our property or something we, really weird. Counted. Yeah. Something weird <laughs> happened. It was nonsense, but we were stuck with it. So the rent, the dollars work. weren't that high because it was tiny, but you know. So you didn't open, um, well, you actually, you kind of try to scale. It looks like you try to scale this business because oh. you had a second location. We right? did, yeah. So we at the very end of 2010, we opened the Greenville Beer Exchange. The Greenville Beer Exchange is still there. Um, we ended up sell- years later. We ended up selling it to its longtime general manager, Devin, and um, he has now as a you know locally owned owner operator based business. Uh, he's been very successful there. So Greenville Beer Exchange is still rocking and rolling. He's expanded tremendously up there. We own that store. For several years, and um, when we started planning for Edmund's Oast, it started to become clear that twofold. We, A, licensing, the way alcoholic beverage licensing in South Carolina works, it was going to be a problem for us to have these retail stores like that weren't on the same tier of licensing as what this was going to be. Um, but also, that store needed the attention of an owner that was present, and... Um, we not only lived three and a half hours away, but we were about to open a business that was going to 100% take our eyes off that prize. Oh. So it was the right thing to do to uh, enable the manager there to buy it. And he's crushed it. He does so much better with it than we did. So you were in retail as an owner for almost a full year, or sorry, almost 10 years before ever getting into the food and beverage. Uh, yes. 2017 was when you opened. We opened here 2014. 14, so, so it's 2008 to 2014 was all retail. Got it. Um, any other, so you, you said you made a bunch of mistakes. I mean, I know we're still talking about retail, but is there anything that's worth like, like universal lessons, regardless of the type of business you're in that you learned during that time we can talk about during those years? Yeah. Oh gosh. I mean, I mean, aside from like, opening without any operating capital and getting lucky that that worked. I mean, just the lessons were inventory plenty. Management. <laughs> yeah, I mean, inventory management, sure. That's a, that, those are lessons, yeah. valuable lessons. Um, learning the legal landscape. When you're dealing with alcohol or any type of anything that has like government controls on it, at a state level especially, where 
it's a little different from state to state and harder to understand because there's not a national level of set index city laws. City, depending sure, on yeah. yeah. So learning the nuances of that were very challenging. We started offering growlers, which are like jugs that you fill with draft beer in our shop. No one was doing that at the time. We were doing it because as far as we could determine, there was no law against doing it. There was also no law saying you could do it. So we got really heavily scrutinized by state level authorities for like, do, you know, for doing that. Um, Did you have com- to stop? No, but there were some folks that tried to get us to stop. Um, you know, even doing beer tastings at that time was kind of considered illegal. There was so many weird challenges that we would we would just try to do something really basic and like innovative for our business, and then we would find out, oh, someone's going to try to stop you from doing that. Yeah, and that's crazy, but that's how it is. So there was many of those instances. So arming yourself with the education of understanding the legalities around any of these kind of things, um, whether it's dealing with alcohol or, you know, dry aging charcuterie, um, you know, it's, it's, or beef, like any of these things have some regulator looking down, you know, you're breathing down your neck and being as prepared as possible for things that you don't even think you'll have to think about is key. How do you prepare for things you don't think of that you'll have to think about? That's the challenge. There isn't really a way. You kind of work, edit, and find out and adapt on the fly yeah, to survive. Exactly. Just start and then you know pivot as needed uh, and evolve as needed. So what, what do you think sets you up for success at Edmonds Oust? Well, I mean, what sets us up for success, you know, nowadays and more recent years is really our team. I mean, beyond anything, we invest in people. What now. was your team before you started doing this? What was my team? Yeah, like what, like what, like what kind of team did you had? Had you like, like at the Charleston Beer Exchange? Yeah, did you carry that team over into this? The Charleston Beer Exchange was myself and my business partner, the other owner, and one employee. That one employee, yes, we carried him over. He still it works for our company. Nice. His name's Brandon Plyler, and uh, he uh, refers to himself on occasion as employee number one because it's true. (laughs) Uh, And uh, he, so I mean, we're talking about the other store was sold to the owner, and you know, still so I mean, we're talking the carryover is like. We went from one employee to 150 employees, so it's uh, that's crazy. It's a big difference. So, what was the narrative leading into 2014? Like, when did the conversation like why wasn't a beer retail store enough or two beer two beer? Well, we started seeing shift in the marketplace. We were looking into opening more of an on-premise version of what we're doing rather than just retail. We wanted to open like a little craft beer bar. Our first imaginated iteration of it, imaginated, imagined iteration of it, oh boy, was uh, a really small, like the same type of place, but a place where you went to drink beers there instead of just buying retail to go. That's how we, th- we thought we were going to do. But as we looked for uh, a space to lease and as the idea kind of snowballed bigger and bigger, it evolved and you know it became more of a a craft beer bar with food and then it was like a craft beer bar with food and and wine and and cocktails and then full restaurant and then eventually a full brewery this place so eventually we landed on this location um we put together some investors um and uh the space was big and the location kind of called for something more and we ended up doing a full brew pub restaurant Beer, wine, cocktails, culinary program, on-site brewery, guest beer program. You know, the every like I said, the everything mode was born. Let's do it all. Yeah. So I can only imagine. I think is there anything worth mentioning before we took our first break to kind of 
talk about the, what sets you up. Like you're, 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 I don't know. You didn't really, you don't really have a traditional path into becoming a restaurant owner. I Most sure people don't. went and they worked for a bunch of other successful places. They learned, they, they got the experience. They, they, they tested things that they thought they might want to do. And they, they gather all that knowledge. They open restaurants for other people so they can learn that side of the business. You kind of just said, let's, let's go. It just, like you said, it snowballed into what it is today. Right. It wasn't supposed to work. I'm aware of that. Like I did, again, did it all wrong. It's not supposed to work. I'm the classic like version of a story where like everyone tells it like, oh yeah, like I didn't know what he was doing. Like I didn't know what he was getting into. Had no business opening that, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, I get it. I understand why it would sound that way. Um, I, I was very fortunate that I um, had an unusual, unusual work ethos. I'm not going to call it ethic, maybe. But like, I, I just had no boundaries um, for how much I, I'm willing to work. I mean, now I'm a little older. I've, I've totally like slowed down a drop, but like my current version is still like absurd by normal person standards. Back then, I mean, it didn't matter. I, I would, I would literally, if I had to work 24 hours a day and sleep for 30 minutes in the office, like whatever, yeah. any, and anything was fair game. So, um, I had that thing going for me, and then um, I was able to start on a path of building a really strong team around me, which uh, has been something that's been most critical to me, you know, indefinitely, like ongoing to this very day. The the most critical skill any restaurateur can have. Yeah. So like, I'm just naturally good at that. I'm, I, 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 what I take the most pride in is some of the people that I have been able to bring into our organization and keep them in our organization. Um, That's, I think that's the most important thing to me in my role here. So what was your approach to recruiting? How did you find these people? I think being a part of the craft beer world, I'm sure probably opened a lot of doors into the, the beverage, the food. Like you probably had lots of people who shared your passions coming to you in your store networking. Yeah. Um, you know, it, when we're putting this place together, it starts with finding, you know, so you're starting with the right. Well, let's back it up even further. We had to put together the right team of investors to even enable this place, right? So, because again, I don't come from any money. I didn't really have any money of any note. Um, if you look around, you might suspect this all costs a lot of money. It did. So, how do you even get people to believe in you in the first place, especially right. me? Because who am I? I'm how nobody. Do you? That's a great question. Um, our first investor we met through the Charleston Beer Exchange. At that time, he lived near that shop and he would come in and notice that the same two guys worked in this place seven days a week, 365 days a year. We were open every day. Like, actually, on big holidays, we'd do a half day. But I think, I think I remember calculating that, again, this doesn't take into account like a three-hour day versus a 12-hour day. But I think I recall that I once calculated that I'd worked like a, a little over 900 consecutive days at one point in, in, in that era. Yeah. Um, it's not like that anymore. I'm not saying that's a permanent lifestyle, but back then I was, that shouldn't be the goal either. <laughs> it shouldn't be, but you know, <laughs> it, to be proud of, I but, mean. I, but I, I don't even know if I'm proud of it. I think it's funny. I, I genuinely think it's funny. And I don't think it's funny. Like how could I do that? Or I, I think it's like, it's just ha ha funny to me. I was like, Hey, that's really funny. I worked 900 days. I've always been like that. So he noticed that you guys were busting your ass. Yeah. He noticed that. And he was like, if you ever want money to expand and actually he helped us open the Greenville store yeah. just with a loan. Um, so we already had him on board. 
once you have one, it helps. Yeah. So when you have one guy who's willing to put money in that believes in you, it gets that sells it a little bit more yeah. to getting other guys on board. Yeah. That first one is like the hardest, but he genuinely recognized our our work and our intention. Really liked beer. Really liked us. Yeah. Thought this would be cool. Yeah. Um, and then we borrowed money from him to open our Greenville store and paid him back and and when we paid him back he's like you're the first people that ever paid me back let me know whatever you want more (laughs) so i mean you know just like kind of building that trust and then having one guy on board then we were about this place we were approached by the developer who is the landlord up here who was hoping we might either move our store our retail shop or open another location up here on this development he was doing and we told him at the time like we're not interested in that but we are looking to do a craft beer bar restaurant kind of place we ended up touring the property with him, and um, he, the developer himself, ended up becoming another investor for us, um, along with his partner, and then later on, one more guy that was a friend of theirs. So we built this like sort of little small group of investors just by being there, by working yeah. hard and showing up and like being passionate and, and genuine and honest and having integrity and yeah. that being recognized. I mean, it's, it's that simple and that hard, right? Like that, it is that simple. But what you're talking about is conceptually simple, not easy to do. Agreed. There's, listen, invest partnerships of any kind are so complicated. Partnerships with investors are even more complicated. Um, You have to take a lot of ego out of things. You have to be really open-minded. You have to not necessarily just take the first investor you can get. You have to be smart about the choices you make. And I'm not trying to... It's not like, just money. It's a relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. And you have to understand everyone's expectations and needs and how involved they do or don't plan to be. Um, my current landscape here is like I have uh, operating partners and I have investor partners. I, I have both. Um, and that has shifted a little bit over time. So, uh, but... I think I really um, wandered down a tangential path here. I think your original question was something like, "How do you build like a good yeah, the team?" team, the team right. <laughs> Sorry, I, I got so, like so far off. Um, but so the so the in- investment group formed, and we started on a path to like develop what this was going to be. And then I sought to build on the relationships I had with people in this industry that I had spent years getting to know people to either reach out to people I wanted to work for me or reach out to people I knew would know people that should work for me and start building a management team. And um, I had a couple of great mentors, um, one of whom or two of whom were very helpful in kind of helping me get in a temporary like uh, consulting general manager when we first opened to like teach us everything that we didn't know which was so much which is everything everything (laughs) hello please teach me everything (laughs) and you know what this guy like did it because he was that good um and he usually came from an organization that was that good and i can name all that if you want i'm I'm happy i mean give it drop some love man. so i mean two two of my greatest mentors uh, or Steve Palmer and Jeremiah Bacon from the Indigo Road restaurant group um, used to say here in Charleston, but now they're like all over. So they're, they're a bit farther and wider than just Charleston that these sounds days. Super familiar. I think I might've had one of them. Stephen Palmer sounds familiar. I, I've done almost a thousand interviews. Steve so. is like certainly an iconic restaurateur at this yeah. point and was an incredible mentor to me in our, in our early years. And still, it, I still text him or call him when I have like a question about something to this day. Um, cause he's just got so much experience. It's crazy. Well, I think people are afraid to go ask for help for whatever reason, whether, whether it be ego, whether it be just afraid that they're going to say no or like, like, but 
people are people who are successful in this industry are successful because they're willing to help. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of great uh you know, not just camaraderie, but like actual willingness to step in and in all kinds of ways. I mean, we see like one restaurant like has a disaster like of some sort, like all these other restaurants like come around step and try up. to step up yeah. and help them out. So, I mean, that's a I mean, that's a great thing. Um it's a beautiful thing. There's a lot of competition too, but it's not um you know, it's friendly competition, I guess. Yeah. So, so I mean, I think this is a good lesson. If you're listening to this and, you, and you're in the situation that Scott was in getting started, not really you know, having a passion for an element associated to the restaurant industry for you, that was beer and beverage, uh, but you don't have any operating experience, put your ego aside. Don't be afraid to reach out to people that you've established relationships, no matter how that might have been, and ask for help and, and, just, and, and take what is offered, right? Absolutely. So what was offered? Well, when, when you went to these these guys, right? Oh, well, I mean, you know, Steve and Jeremiah helped me find this great consulting, like, interim GM to help us get started, help me and yeah. my business partner, Rich, get started, yeah. um, help us sort of shape the entire plan of how the hell we were going to do this. Um, Jeremiah helped connect me with our original chef, um, Andy, who's the, you know, you got to want it guy that I mentioned. Yeah. Um, who was a great chef from Charleston, but had moved out, moved away and was coming back. And he had a relationship with Jeremiah and Jeremiah kind of connected him with us and said, Hey, you should talk to these guys. And he ended up, you know, being our developing and opening chef. He, he was only actually here for operations for maybe like another year or stuff before his, he, he and his wife were given a farm in Sonoma, California. How do you turn that down? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So when he told me, I was like, you got to go. I yeah. love you. And that's Goodbye. another big lesson too. That's subtle. Like it's not about you and growing your business. It's about everyone else and what they want. And when oh, you make yeah. it about them, it comes back. It, it, it comes back. That's the thing. That's if, if you take away anything from me in this conversation, it's invest in your people, care about your people, be pre- entirely prepared to set your people, like let your people go when something that bigger and better comes along and be excited for them. Like you got to do that. Now, I also said we, I sort of specialize in retaining people and I do. And I've been really fortunate to create bigger and better opportunities and help people want to stay here rather than moving on. But when something too good to pass up comes along for someone else, you should be happy. You should be celebrating that you help them get to that next stage in their life. And, um, that's so important as like a philosophy of like what we do here that we are all about. Everyone says, "Oh, the restaurant business is a people business." I guess maybe someone says, "Maybe maybe nobody all says that." All business is people. All business is people business. Yeah. Sure, um, but uh, for us, it's very important that the first people that matter are, are our team, our staff um, of all you know all levels of our staff. That's first and foremost. You have to take care of them properly, so that they want to take care of your exactly. guests properly and you. And and yeah, sure, it all flows up and downstream. So. Yeah. The guest experience is so critical to us here. How do we ensure a great guest experience? We ensure a great employee experience, a great workplace experience. If if work if the workplace is excellent, supportive, and kind, and, and educational, and, and caring, um, and professional, though, you know, like it's not all about you know people always talking about like being a family and stuff like that. Well, yeah, that's great, but like people want to work in a place that also has like professional standards and that, you know, your teammate is held accountable so that you're not carrying too much weight. So it's important to like not overly mush that up. Um, all that stuff really matters. Um, being professional is a key element of caring about your staff. 
when so, you say what, what, what does being professional mean to you? What is professional having profe- having standards that you're that people are held to? Okay. I mean, having um, having a way that things are done that is open to constructive criticism, adaptable, mendable, dynamic, always evolving, but that there is always a, a, a way that it, this is a, how something is executed, and that um, so that and we're always kind of striving to to achieve that new best way to do something. We have evolved so many times um, that uh, in the course of our many years here now, I mean, we've been open about nine and a half years here. Um, and that time we have shifted gears new, over and over again. Well, that was my, my one thing I was curious about. Was this your mentality then or was this learned over the past nine years? Well, I think you have to have a little bit of that in you from the get go, just part of your, your, um, but yes, and, and there has to be a seed has to be planted like innately to you. Um, cause certainly like this type of stuff isn't right for everyone. Uh, but we have that seed has sprouted here. We've grown and learned and are continuing to grow and learn and constantly evolve and pivot. I mean, this is not even the same place it was, before COVID. So, I mean, just in the last uh, three, four years, yeah, we'll get we're an entirely that. different restaurant. I, th- I think now's a good time to take our first break to take our sponsors and we'll be right back to start talking about. I'm curious about, you know, when you when you build a business based off the people you attract onto yourself, because you were dependent on them. You needed those people. If, if that opening GM wasn't here and that opening chef wasn't here and you didn't have those people to be in their lanes, like what would you have done, right? You were dependent on those people. But is it good to be people dependent is my question. So that will be the teaser. We'll come right back. This episode is brought to you by One Huddle. One Huddle is a coaching and development platform using quick burst mobile games to more quickly and effectively level up and fire up your workforce. One Huddle provides a mobile first approach to preparing the modern worker, a library of 3000 plus quick burst skill games and the option to instantly create personalized content. One Huddle is changing the way restaurants develop their workers by transforming the traditional manuals in videos into deceptively simple, highly effective mobile games proven to level up workers quickly. Let's get into some of the facts. So with one huddle, you can onboard employees 45% faster than traditional methods. And there's actually a study done by the University of South Florida that has proven you can train your employees 45% faster using games on one huddle versus traditional micro learning and video based learning. This new and improved way to educate your staff will translate into increased sales because you're creating more consistency with the guest experience, both front and back of house, i.e. menu development, menu memorizing, POS, limited time offers, food costing, things like this. You're looking at a more engaged worker too because they're in competition with themselves and the entire organization. This stuff is powerful. Right now, head to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash one, like the number one in huddle, like a football huddle. And if you use that link, you can get 90 days access to one huddle's game 
game shop, which includes 3,000 plus on-demand skill games on everything from bartending to serve safe to the latest Amazon best-selling books and so much more. Again, that's restaurantunstoppable.com slash one huddle. And you have to use that link. This is a cost per acquisition agreement, meaning we get paid per lead that goes through that link. So if you are finding value in this podcast and you want to support please use this link. And it's it's a testament to how much we believe in one huddle that we're willing to do this. So thank you in advance. All right, we are back. And what I'm interested in knowing, um, you, you, it's important to surround yourself with amazing people, right? But were you mindful of realizing that um, if these people were to like leave, you wouldn't have anybody with that expertise? Like, were you thinking in the back of your mind, like, how do I recreate these people? Like, How do I put systems around what these people are teaching us? Yes. Um, I think... Okay, I mean, you have to take this almost department by department in a way. So, I mean, we had the beverage background. So, you know, that was a little bit more comfortable. From the culinary perspective, there's a tendency in the restaurant business, I've learned, to sort of shy away from... Well, there's two schools of thought. There's... investment that shies away from being too chef driven because everything is contingent upon your chef. And I mean, if that chef leaves, your concept falls apart. So there's these restaurants that tend to try to like standardize everything. And or yeah, or for front of house manager leaves, the standards fall apart. Cause sure. like that person is, is the glue. Yes. They're the one that's keeping things in order. They're the one that's maintaining the standard. But what happens when that person leaves? Yeah, well, with the front of house side of it, I mean, we were quickly learning how to be that person. And from a beverage perspective, as far as a front of house service perspective, I mean, we were rapidly uh, eating up everything we could to um, be the best that we could be in those areas. And then from the kitchen side, we leaned into being chef driven. Um, We didn't want someone to create uh, a set of like a whole recipe book for a laminated menu that never changed. And we were just ready to embrace being a chef driven restaurant and allowing the chef's creativity and management of that side of the business to just shine and flourish. And we've, we've gone through chef change, you know, as I mentioned, Andy left and um, you know, it, we had a interim period and eventually now our chef Bob is my business partner and he's co-owner of this restaurant. And, um, you know, when did that happen? That shift? When, when did the Bob come in? Bob, uh, came in about go gosh. He's been, he's been here about five years in total now. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to get him. It took, you know, I would have liked to get him in, in even sooner um, than we did. And ultimately, it took a lot of work to get him on board. But when finally he accepted, you know, I made it clear to him. I was like, let's like test these waters out. And everything goes good. Like you're going to become a partner of this yeah. place. So that was five happened. years ago. So we're going back to like 2018 ish. Yeah. Um, if it so was really six and I'm getting my timeline wrong, I apologize to Bob. Well, approximately. Right. Like yeah. I like to know my mind works chronologically. So you open with the chef. He's here. He has an opportunity to grow and go beyond and do his own thing. How long did, into the 
the business was that did that that departure happen? Oh, we had only been operating for about a year when okay. he got this incredible so you, offer. So you had like a three four year period where you were going through multiple different. Yeah, well, there was like one in between them that didn't you know work out for long term, um, and that and that was a hard time. There were some challenges, but ultimately, like we landed in the best possible scenario because finally we got his name is Bob Cook and uh, how appropriate it's very appropriate. And, you know, we really had wanted him to be part of this place for a long time. Andy even had tried to court him into coming on when Andy was getting ready to leave. And we just couldn't pull it off in those that at that time. So, but eventually it worked out and it worked out for the best because now, you know, we're the strongest we've ever been and we're growing uh, the most we've ever grown yeah. and and bob's a full full-fledged partner yeah and I, it's I great s- i see a ton of benefit in in having a business with a, a bunch of owners well, not everybody i mean there's definitely some downsides to that where you know if you bring on a partner and they decide that they don't want to be a part of it and they own a stake in your business and they're still collecting their paycheck but they you know like they're not showing up right so yeah. how do you protect yourself from bringing on owners um like do you, do you like what 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 things do you have to do to protect yourself in the business from that happening? Like, well, I mean, from a technical side, there's operating agreements everyone can sign that you have like legal basis for to make change if someone's not doing what they're supposed to do. But I mean, without even going too deep into that kind of stuff, I mean, I it's about making sure that you're being careful and taking your time to work with the right people. Right. Right. Um, if you rush into something and are just so eager to open a business that you work with partners operating or investor that are not a good fit for you it's going to end poorly it's going to be a disaster for someone if not everyone so how did you go about navigating those waters of offering somebody equity in your business who came on five years into that business you know like that to me is scary and i think it should be scary it shouldn't be taken lightly well we knew bob was the right chef for this restaurant why why because he had the right passion the right determination the ability more than anything to manage people to care about his team, to really not only represent the culture that we had worked hard to develop, but to further amplify that culture. This is just a great fit. Um, it's not all about like how good your food is. It's more about like how good you are with managing a team and managing yeah. that, that the back of house. And I mean, as everyone knows that listens to this, uh, hiring is harder than ever, especially in back of house, in all departments, but in back of house, I mean, you have to be someone that people want to work for or else you're in trouble. Yeah. And Bob is that guy. Bob's yeah. someone that people want to work for. So we've had the finding same... Finding ch- that guy is even harder than finding employees. Right. So you find that guy right. or gal, what are you going to offer them to, to, to be long-term? And I think I think stake in the business sure. is the best thing. And that's the most equitable thing, honestly. Like You need that part of the business. Well, it's very real. I mean, you can negotiate salary and pay more, pay more, pay more. But ownership and having a place that at the table, no matter what, through thick and thin, it's not always great to be an owner. Believe me, when stuff's going poorly, it's not awesome. (laughs) But, but, um, you know, having that equity has a deeper sense of meaning. Not everybody wants to be an owner. I'll take my paycheck. Not everybody. Yeah, sure. Not everybody does. Not everybody should be. It's not for everyone. Uh, we could say that whole, about anything. I feel like there's a whole element of this business we haven't even touched on yet. When you first were getting started, you wanted to be a craft beer restaurant, not a brewery. Right. But you opened as a brewery, right? Yes. So this, this space here was bigger than we 
had originally imagined. But and it was like open, and there was a lot of natural light, and had a big outdoor area. Is this building we're sitting in right now the original? Yes, but we stripped it. The demolition took it down to, I mean, almost nothing. So nothing you see with your naked eye is original. A hundred percent. I mean, but, of but this, this building is, is what you opened in, right? Like yes, this it is. What, this was what it was. Like I mean, if you, you look, if you find some pictures um, on the internet of like before we started the build out, they're, they're out there. I mean, there wasn't even four walls. There was like half a roof and three walls left in the demolition. It was completely gutted, so there was nearly nothing. Yeah, but it was a building. Yes. Yeah. So I guess where I'm going with this is you have these elements. You have you you know beer. Right. That's that's your strength. You know, beer, that's your passion. You know, wine and spirits. That's your passion. Um, you didn't know the kitchen operations. You didn't know restaurant operations. You you found your, your chef. You found your front of house GM slash consultant. Then there's the brewery. Yeah, that's a whole nother chef. Yeah, it that's is a whole nother business model. Fortunately, that guy was already on my team, though. OK, um, so that's Cameron Reed. Uh, Cameron was the general manager of the Greenville Beer Exchange and then was going to uh, was part of the opening planning for Edmund Zost and uh, he had some brewing experience as an incredibly smart guy and didn't always intend on being the brewer here um, thought he was going to maybe be a beverage director and kind of oversee the brewing operations but hire a staff brewer but ultimately he decided that it was best if he did it himself. Yeah. So was he brewing as a hobbyist before this? As a hobbyist, and he also had some professional experience. Um, he wasn't the head brewer at some big some big brewery to uh, to to name drop here, but he had worked um, as a professional brewer at a place upstate and a place down here in Charleston as well. So he had he had commercial experience on top of yeah. home brewing experience. Okay. Uh, so. I guess, like, what, what, like, what are the things I, I haven't considered yet to bring this all together? The elements that we to bring this together. Well, I mean, what are the other elements to bring it together? The, I mean, forming that team and then the hiring of everyone else that comes after that team, yeah. and making, bringing in, attracting good people to work here, and then instilling like a culture of what you want to be and, and standards of service and what we're creating and what we're what we're. What you, we're delivering. Do you to remember guests, that, so. that that narrative you were sharing the shit when you were sharing the vision of what you wanted it, to be? In the it does. Team? It does. You know, it is a di- it's a moving target. It does change over time. Over nine or ten years, you, people change. People change. Our path changes. So I mean, it, um, it. It's not the same as it was then. Exactly. I mean, we what always was it had, then though. I mean, then. You know, I I I I think back then, you know, we had. Um, one of those really long mission statements, like with a whole bunch of stuff in it that has evolved. A mission paragraph, yeah, a mission paragraph. You know that I couldn't <laughs> even quote now our year one mission statement, but um, you know we were trying to be. Look, let me let me answer this differently. As the years have evolved and those things have changed, the landscape of staffing the expectations of guests, the shift in mentality of everything as a result of COVID, we have leaned more into the comfort side of this business, which is digging in on standards of hospitality, but not trying to elevate, you know, how fine the dining is. You know, it's, it's not like we're more motivated to deliver delicious food and 
excellent service that has more of a fun vibe to it. Fun can and, and caring, but not as preoccupied with how refined those things are. And, um, you know, that has been, you know, the very short version of our, of our evolution. Uh, you know, how do we ensure that everyone has a great time and feels really cared for and feels like we're really happy that they're here, staff and guests? Yeah, yeah. So over this time, as you've been evolving, um, as you've been growing as a restaurant, restaurateur, learning through experience, what were some of the things you learned the hard way? over the evolution as you scaled and oh my gosh operation. how hard it is to actually make money in this business yeah so what have you learned like what have you changed to increase the to, to add on those death you know, i mean we're constant points i mean look top line sales and bottom line sales i told you i'm not a real technical guy and i'm not but you know you you your gross sales can be rec- you you can have the highest gross sales of any restaurant in the, in the city but if you're not running things right it doesn't mean you're profitable. Right. So what were the things that you got a hold of that you that maybe got away from you in the early days when you didn't know what to manage? Well, you know, labor costs. I mean, are, the, this is where we fall into traditional answers. Labor costs. I mean, pricing properly. All those strategies, which, again, I don't follow the most hardcore principles on that stuff. We are kind of a from the, the gut or shoot from the hip kind of place in a lot of ways. But we do that with a really strong base knowledge and ability um, and a lot of experience now. And I don't mean my experience. I mean my team's experience. You know, I mean, we have a gazillion years of really great experience if you put all the team together. So we're doing this from an intelligent and informed perspective. Um, so even though we don't, you know, follow every penny on a spreadsheet, um, we are very mindful of how we operate overall in, in all in all these ways. So, in the years of operating, have you have you applied systems to focus on the things like profitability, like reducing labor, like uh, getting what you need to? From like the like pricing out your menu, right? To, to get a return, things like that. Yeah, I mean, we don't use any super interesting software for any of that. Everything's still done in a fairly conventional manner. Um, you know, we we recently, I mean, we we've updated our point of sale systems and stuff like that. I, you know, we use Toast now, like so many other restaurants do, and that sort of taken a step forward by using a little bit more advanced technology than what we were doing with Aloha in the earlier years. But I don't use a ton of software that the bells and whistles software to, to micromanage every facet of the business. I know some restaurateurs do and they're like really dug in on that. I'm really focused on what's actually happening in our dining rooms yeah. and what's actually happening out in the market with our beer. That's, that's where I keep my eyes on it. And that's your lane. And that's why you surround yourself with people who are strong at the other stuff. Yeah. Right? And that, that's a completely acceptable answer. So in terms of what you do and what your lane is, how have you evolved and, and what, what that looks like through your lines? Yeah. And in, in my personal day to day. Yeah. Yeah. So when we first opened, I mean, I spent uh, every hour of every day and every night, in the, in this restaurant, on the floor of this restaurant, um, I was the first one in the building in the morning, and I was the last one out the door at the end of the night, every day, like every single day. Bartending, serving? I, mostly just managing, but always being present, always being very active on the floor, um, interacting with the kitchen, interacting with the guests, interacting with our staff, like 
deep into every facet of what we're doing. I mean, I would jump behind the bar. I would help with the table. But yeah, I never well, acted you, as a server. Yeah. I never acted as a full-time bartender. Nor, nor would I be a great... I can help, but I mean, I'm not... I don't have the skill level that our professional bartender, our professional servers, our professional cooks, you know, do. So there's a reality that like you can be a great manager, but you can be a hindrance to your team by like stepping in over your head into a very specific department. Like if I like tried to jump on like the saute station and take over when the restaurant's busy, we are going to go down in flames because I can't do it, of course. Yeah. Um, so it's important to, it's important to not get in the way when you have a great team uh, it's not always the answer to like get in the way of what they're doing either. So what has your personal evolution as a restaurant tour been in your lane? Um, I, I think it goes back to really understanding how important it is to co- invest in people and cultivate your people. And uh, we from at, at all levels, uh, management uh, and, and everything after that too. So, so how has evolving and investing in your people changed over time? I mean, I think that we've really learned that our number one priority is putting our team first. And I mean, it, it's like, that sounds like an old mantra, like that anybody would have said 10 years ago, but I would call some degree of bullshit on that because first of all, the way the the staffing issues work, crisis, if that's your preferred word, uh, works now, you can't, no one can play this game the way so many restaurateurs used to because it used to be like what you know you could be a hard ass boss and yell and and just get pissed off someone did something way you didn't want there's to there's always somebody that, that you can and feel you can feel right so it doesn't work that way anymore so and i'm grateful that it doesn't because it has really uh cultivated an environment that i'm a lot more proud of that where our number one priority is making sure that everyone's okay, that our people are good, that they feel like they know what they're doing, that they're enjoying their work, that they're happy to come to work. No one's sitting in their car dreading walking into their shift because some asshole manager berated them and embarrassed them last night, and they're sitting in their car crying, trying to muster up the courage to walk into a job that they actually hate. Fuck all that. That's a horrible, horrible way to exist. And I'm not saying we were ever that, but I'm saying I've, I've, I've learned more and more about how to push further and further away from that and how to recognize the strength in every person that comes in here that to work and how to cultivate that and how to accentuate their strong, you know, attributes and how to minimize anything that they're less good at and finding the right role for people and all of that. So give me examples of how, how you're doing that, that things you're doing now after this, this new perspective after this evolution, how does that manifest in your business? What are the actions that happen that didn't happen before? Sure. Well, okay. So we never had a general manager here at this restaurant because I was, I never called myself the general manager, but I was here all the time managing the restaurant. So I just was the general manager, even though I didn't use that title. But, you know, in later years, we promoted our first ever general manager. Her name's Suzanne Stone Lockhart. And she uh, is awesome. And me, I mean, I'm sure I don't let go of the reins as much as she entirely wishes I did. <laughs> um, I'm still around too much. But, you know, she has elevated our investment into staff more than I was able to because she's better at it than me. Like and how? that's cool. So, how is she yeah, better at it than me? Give an example of what, how she elevated it. Um, she has a great ability to recognize... Um, 
like needs within humanity, like human, like the needs of people. So she has, she has a better ability. I like, I just sat here and said, the thing I care most about is taking care of our people. Okay. Well, here's someone that's even better at taking care of their people than I am. So she should be empowered to be the people taker care. Yeah. Still holding people to standards, setting standards, holding them to them, but also being there for someone like, you know, she's just very strong and like able to be someone that can recognize when someone's struggling with something and recognize how to like help them fix that in a really like uplifting way instead of putting someone down or belittling them. So she has some, you know, unique natural ability in that and letting her run with that was the right thing to do. It was smart. We also have a great man- general manager at our tap room at Edmonds Brewing Company, which is what we call the other restaurant off the street. Yeah, and we haven't talked about that yet. That was my. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah sorry, I didn't. No, you're full of beans. No, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> um, so empowering really great general managers is is a key step, and and chefs, right? Because like the chef is kind of like the general manager of the back of house, sort of. Depends on your organization how that all works, but. Yeah. Um, so here at this location, Bob, my business partner, the co-owner of this restaurant is also, you know, the leader of the back of house and, you know, he does a great job and I kind of already touched on how he invests in his people, looks out for his people and is the kind of kitchen leader that people want to work for, which is really critical in this environment that we're in. So as you're growing, so when, when did you open your second location? Well, first, before we get into the second location, I'm assuming the evolution of where you are here has some story too because you you probably order you open with a brick and mortar you had the brewery where we're sitting today was the patio what it is today no um we always i see a bar out there oh yeah put you guys so we didn't have that when we first opened um we always had a big outdoor space but it was undeveloped we just had picnic tables on gravel out there it It was rustic uh, to say the least and um uh, about a year in we started building out that covered structure which is a was a pretty massive uh, undertaking a big timber frame old school style. How long into it was it? We started planning for it a ye- after we've been open for a okay. year or so. But then it still took a while beyond that. So let's say, yeah. it, let's say it was totally open like two years in or something like that. So we built a big covered dining area. Out, we call it the Bower. Was that always the plan to expand out in the patio? It was. I mean, I think we kind of wish we had always had it, but it just like wasn't going to be ready at the time with well, this. I think that was one of the, the points I was hoping to make is that you don't have to have the, the grand vision on day one. You can start where you are and scale into that. For sure. And honestly, it helps to scale into that because... Oh yeah, it's a whole other dining room that we weren't ready to serve. Exactly. And when we first opened, you know, even trying to serve anything outside was kind of a disaster because we weren't ready for it. And we I think it helps learn. you stay fresh too. Like yeah. from the consumer, like, oh, here's some news. We have a patio now. Oh, that's and like so when you're staying when you're constantly evolving the business, doing new things, give, providing new offerings to the the guests, it it keeps you fresh, keeps you top of mind. It's something to like to celebrate and to you know to, it's something new, right? Instead of staying the same forever. Yeah, yeah. Newness matters. I mean, we're kind of at a point now where here at this location, it's yeah, we're not going to add another physical structure or anything like yeah. that. But there are other ways that we evolve and grow. So, so you do have two restaurants now, correct? Yes. What's the second restaurant? So this one you're sitting in, we now kind of refer to as the restaurant at Edmonds Oast or just Edmonds Oast or Edmonds Oast Restaurant. All of those work. Um, we opened Edmonds Oast Brewing Company just up the road, half mile up the road at 1505 King Street in 2017. And um, that is a really big production brewery where we brew beer to distribute out wholesale uh, across eight states. 
cans and kegs. So we're, we're selling to retailers and bars and restaurants through a wholesaler in each state, of course. But um, And we built another restaurant location there. So we call that one the Tap Room at Edmonds Whispering Company. But it's not just a tap room. It's a full restaurant. It's open lunch and dinner seven days a week. And um, it, it's big. It has a lot of seats. But it's a completely different vibe. The feeling's a little bit more industrial. The menu's totally different. Same chef? No. Okay. Different chef. It's it's operated, you know, there's there's great cooperation, but sep- there's also separation. So um, different chef, different menu, different feel, different service style than, than this one. But you're still using the, the Edmonds mm-hmm. brand. We have three different entities with the name Edmonds Oast. So you have Edmonds Oast Brewing Company, Edmonds Oast Restaurant, and then we also have Edmonds Oast Exchange next door. The exchange is uh, primarily a wine and beer retail shop, but it also is has a bit of a cafe vibe. You can sit in there and drink wine or beer or have like a snack to okay. eat as well. Gotcha. Um, when you're opening these new locations, is there any confusion with the consumer that they're expecting more of the original Edmonds? Yes, a ton. Um, to this day, many, many years into all of these locations, if it's not, if so, we have someone showing up to one to meet somebody, it's very common for them to end up at the wrong location. Oh, yeah. So I don't know that I would advise anyone else to open three different places all with the same, almost the same name. I think yeah. it's too confusing. I don't know that I regret us doing it because in the end the brand the brand has momentum and power right that's what we really wanted we we really wanted to establish this connection and be like yeah the edmund again back to edmund ah (laughs) edmund is a reference to an old english brewer in the late 1700s that came over to the charleston area at that time period and um yeah, opened a brewery in Charleston that was very successful. Uh, but there's so, something to be said around branding and uh, having a story behind your brand. So that was our thought. Our, uh, we really wanted to like establish that these three places were all connected and and you know that we were all it is all the same family of businesses, um, and that that was important to us for sure. But uh, yeah, there's a ton of confusion. There continues to be confusion to this day. There will always be some confusion. I, I wouldn't recommend it. I don't know that I would do it different, though, at the same time. Yeah. So where where are you today? Where is your business today? What is your role? Like, what, what does Scott Shore do today versus what you did back then? Yeah. So, um, I mean, in the early days of Edmund Zost existence, I just spent all my time in this dining room that you're sitting in, a little bit in the office, but almost all my time in this dining room that you're sitting in. Um, I still spend a great deal of time in this dining room that you're sitting in, but uh, I also am over at our brewing company location at the other restaurant. Um, and then I'm, I'm also out on the road. Uh, we are doing wholesale distribution in eight states with our cans and draft that we make at our other location. Yeah. And uh, I try to be as active as I possibly can. So it sounds like you've that. stayed at the leading edge. So you're always like looking forward growth. Yes. I think our growth nowadays is focused in a little bit of a different direction. You know, in, in the first few years of running a restaurant, you're trying to figure out like how to make the restaurant the best it can be and how to increase sales within the restaurant. Nowadays, our focus on growth from the restaurant perspective is in the private event side of the business. And then for the brewing company is in the distribution of our product out to the world. You know, my, my business partner, so Cameron, our brewing director is also my business partner um, in the brewery. And uh, that was, you know, he made great beers down here. We saw an opportunity for him to make beers on a larger scale and, 
there's the financial business end of it, but like really the ex- most exciting thing to me all kind of comes back to that, like in some way that sort of hospitality or just like that interest in like making people happy. So to do everything we had done until that point, you had to come to us to experience anything Edmonds owes. You had to come eat here or drink here or shop here, whatever. Right. So by take, by making beer, and taking it out into the world through wholesalers and eight other partner states, we were now delivering a little bit of Edmunds Oast to people's homes or to people's home bar and restaurant without them having to come to us. And that's the thing that excited me the most. I mean, Cameron makes amazing beers, so that's also exciting and a key element of why this would work or be a good idea. But at the same time, um, I just love that we can bring Edmunds Oast to someone's house in Alabama by way of selling it through our, host, our wholesaler to a retail store in their hometown, you know? So that's some really special to me. That really. So in terms of business model, um, where is the majority of your revenue coming from now? Is it from the beer, the, the, the wholesale? Um, well, but that's a, that's a more complicated question. We basically have two, so we have two legal entities. There's this restaurant and the exchange. That's, this is yeah. one legal entity. And then we have the brewing company with that, with its own restaurant, which is another legal entity. So, um, you know, over there, uh, uh, more, I mean, there's, there's more revenue generated from beer production and distribution, but I mean, over here, that's not even really factored in. Like we make beer just to sell here. So here the focus is on, you know, the restaurant side of the Got business, it. but the restaurant's very important to us up there too. I don't know. It's all, well, you, you, piece you of mentioned puzzle. something else that I was hoping to come up, which was the, the personal, um, the events. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a big lesson is that I think restaurants should look at themselves as a, almost as an event companies. Cause yeah. that's what you're doing. You're, you're creating, uh, experiences for every, every night should be an event, right? Like yeah. what's happening. How, so when you say, uh, you, private events. What get into that? Like, how, how oh, did that change your business? Oh, sure. And that's that's been a huge shift. So we have focused so heavily on developing private event business at both locations, but it's we're a bit ahead on the timeline of that development here at this location. Um, that involves booking private events that could be anything from a wedding or rehearsal dinner to a small private dining group to a pharmaceutical sales dinner to you know i mean anything you know yeah. what a private event is. so we have a small private dining room that we offer which is over your left shoulder which we can offer anytime we have our main dining room we have the outside area because there's so many different spaces here there are many times in which we can we yeah. can do a private event while still having uh, the other spaces open to the public. Yeah, it's not uncommon to have a private event on our covered outdoor patio while the yeah. dining room's open to the public, or to have a private event happening in our private dining room while the whole restaurant's open to the public, or any combination of them. And we also are open to taking buyouts for the whole property. Okay, and what about catering? We haven't really done too much offsite catering yet. We've dabbled in it, and we're interested in exploring it further. But to be honest with you, we're just so busy and yeah. there's not like an infinite supply of great staff. So as we know, so it's, it's been hard to take too much of that off site just yet. We've done some really nice events that we've loved doing and I would love to continue to grow that, but it's not the first priority right now. So in all the evolution of Edmunds Oast, is, do you, would you say the events taking on private events has moved the needle the most as far as revenue here at this restaurant location? Yes. 
I would say that has moved the needle the most in these last few years. So, what is it about events that that really helps? That what, what is what's going on there that increases revenue? Well, it's guaranteed business. You know how exactly how to plan for it. It's not. I mean, even if you have an amazing night of regular service. You don't know everything you need. You don't know exactly how many people are coming. It's, it's a guess. It's, it's a guess. Yeah. Um, doing a private event, you know you have 225 people coming. You know exactly what they're going to eat, exactly what their beverage program, what bar package is going to be, exactly how many staff people you need to staff just right. There's no guessing on over or understaffing. There's no guessing on anything. And it's a guaranteed, usually fairly lucrative amount of income. Yeah. Um, you know, so because you factor in all the costs, all the expense oh, sure. for labor, food. You know that that's those are fixed, right? But I think beyond that, you can also charge the fee. Oh, you can charge a lot, and I mean, we have to charge significantly more than we would charge for just a regular night of service. You're losing that space, of course, and we're upsetting guests that might show up to dine. Maybe someone wanted to sit outside, and outside is closer. Event. Like, there's a lot of so that gives you leverage. There's a lot of reasons you have to charge appropriately for that. So, how do you, like what advice do you have in charging appropriately? What what should that look like? Well, it should always look like more than you would do on an average night of that season for that night of the week or day. I don't know, depending on your place, day or night. So, I mean, A, if you're booking a private event and you're not darn sure that that private event is going to generate more money for you than, um, what you could do without it. Than, than what you would do without it, you're messing up. So, the, so that's the, the first rule of thumb. Yeah, so the flat like rate is what can we get from the space on a good night? Yeah, so if you take... Okay, let's say someone's booking an event on a Friday night outside after 5 o'clock. So first of all, you're going to assess, well, what do I do on an average Friday night at this time of year? Yeah. Assuming optimal conditions, good weather and everything, yeah. right? So what's like our best case scenario for a full service Friday night out there? And then you look at that and you're like, okay how much more makes it worth it to me to actually shut this area down and do this for these folks, even though it's better margin business, like you still like you're still interrupting what you advertise yourself to do out there. So it's, it's important for it to be high value to the business. I I will say there's a lot of wiggle room there because we always do what I just said. We always make sure that we are charging more than we would make for service. And I think our event Pricing is still incredibly reasonable compared to what I hear around uh, town or to like rent out like a traditional catering hall or something like that. And you know what? Your food's going to be better than like at a catering facility or something. Your service is going to be better and your guests are going to have a more unique and special fun feeling experience. So we deliver extraordinary value when we do those events. Extraordinary. At what I think are very reasonable prices for what we offer. And we still make more than we would for a regular service. So that's a win for everyone. Yeah. And I can be very proud and open and honest about that. What about promoting your your services, your event services? Is that something that just kind of, you do a good job in word spreads or are you actively selling? You know, these days, we always, we always intend to get out there and like actively sell. But it's been spreading and growing on its own so much. And we have a full-time dedicated private event coordinator manager too. That's just in that role because that's a oh, yeah. that's probably more than one it's person. A different business. I mean, we might need to hire a second person. It's it's a whole thing, um, and that the person does a great job. And yeah, I mean, we're not out there selling it that hard. I mean, if you're just getting started on it, I would definitely recommend you go out there and sell it. But we have so many repeat clients. We have so many people that attended someone else's event that want to do it here because we're delivering a great experience for them. Yeah. So it's growing on its own like wildfire. Yeah. 
So where is Edmonds? Like, I mean, the, the family of business, all of Ed, 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 Edmonds businesses today. Like, where where are you today, and where are you going? Like, what based off of where the market is, based off of the success you've had, the, the things you've learned, the lanes you want to be in. Like, what's your growth look like? What's the future look like? I mean, it's really heavily focused on continuing to excel at what we're already doing and trying to make sure that the experience, you know, dining or drinking with us at any of our locations is really great. But as far as growth in terms of financial growth, I mean, I think it's very much focused on what we just touched upon. It's, it's very much focused on private event growth continuation. And then it's over on the other side of our business. It's focused on, you know, the wholesale distribution of our beer. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know that it's more state. It's not necessarily, I mean, step one isn't a bigger geographical footprint of beer distribution. It's growing sales in markets that we're already in. And we sell the majority of our beer here in the Carolinas, but we're in six other states outside of North and South Carolina, and mm, there's plenty of growth to be had there. What? I'm going to guess South Carolina, North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Virginia. Not Virginia. Not Virginia. Um, this isn't your department, so I don't... No, I... Is it? No, oh, it's, yeah. it is. Okay. I, I, I was waiting. I didn't want to jump on step on oh, your okay, toes. Yeah, Do you yeah. want me to just say it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, New York, and New Jersey. Okay. So why those states? Well, most of those, well, really all of those were born out of pre-existing relate. I mean, like I said, we've been in, in and around, I've been in and around this business for 23 years. Uh, we ended up in states that we had a pre-existing relationship with someone on the wholesale distribution level. So, you know. Has, has being in a broader footprint, your brand spreading out beyond Charleston helped with people coming to Charleston? Yes. Like, oh, it, like, oh, sure. Yeah. It brings, you know, beer, tour- it helps bring beer tourism our way. Especially to the other location, you know, people drink our beer in, you know, you, you name it, Jacksonville, Florida. They look on the can, like, I like this. And like, oh, Charleston, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go check out Charleston. They come yeah. to Charleston, they come see us because they enjoyed our beer. So it certainly helps. Generally speaking, what's happening in the world of beer right now, as far as like what, what's trending? What, is, what's, what, how's the consumer behavior around beer changing? Yeah, you know, there was this massive explosive growth um, up until like right through like the peak COVID 2020 like through 2021 like it was just crazy and then when all the bars and restaurants were shut down breweries that were distributing like packaging cans and bottles like saw growth like they've never seen before and now it's really like leveled back out and so you know you have to refocus and there was a minute there where everything sold itself and you didn't even have to try that's over so you know we're back to applying some effort but that's the way it's supposed to that was always the way it was supposed to be it just sort of took on a life of its own. What, what are we seeing? I think we're seeing that you have to manage your growth carefully. Um, you have to really cultivate the markets that you're in. I mean, this is shifting into a whole beer distribution business talk instead yeah. of a restaurant talk. But um, I think consumers often, or if they're not macro drinkers, they're, then they are often enjoying picking up beers from their local brewery. You know, macro drinker. Uh, you know, Bud Miller, of course. Good. Heineken. Corona kind of stuff. So if you're, if you're a craft beer drinker, I think that oftentimes you're picking up beer from like your local brewery. So if we're not your local brewery, how do we make ourselves matter in your market? So that's things we're always working on. I don't know if that, I mean, it's, I'm curious, like, how do you do that? By, Maybe it doesn't apply to all of our, our listeners. Sure. Uh, how do you do that? You, well, it starts by a, the liquid has to be good. No shit. Right. But you have to make really good beer. That's going to resonate with people. They're going to want to drink. You have to sell it at an affordable price point. 
you know, you can't make all the money. You have yeah. to, it has to be an attractive, sustainable price for people to purchase and pick up regularly. And then you have to show up to these markets and like engage with accounts and, and do events and, and be present and, and meet people and really let the reps that work for the wholesalers in these other states and yeah. other markets like get to know you because those reps are representatives of your brand. Are you seeing a slowdown in general of the craft beer movement? Um, are people drinking differently now? There's certainly a lot more drinkers. Like, look, we've seen all these different... It depends. I don't think people are necessarily like... I mean, I'm sure there's some CNN poll that could say whatever, something more specific. <laughs> My experience is that people aren't drinking less alcohol, but the way they drink shifts. So it, it's constantly way? changing. Well, in the last couple of years, we've seen... Look, we had this seltzer wave, right? So, well, I was curious about that. Sure. So, like, a lot of people started drinking seltzers. I'm one of those people. Cool. Yeah. I mean, for, we've for made, me, it's because I don't, I don't feel as bad after well, that's drinking a beer. that's a fair reason. Yeah. And we've made some seltzers. We're not making any right now. But we've dabbled in it. And we've seen some, some friends' brands grow tremendously in the sel- hard seltzer business. And, you know, that, that's a trend that mattered. Right now, there's a lot of growth in the non-alcoholic category of beer and beverages that previously presented as having alcohol which is a wild trend like we're not really that's gonna be a trend i don't know we're not in on that one but it's it's exploding right now um there's the rtd drink the ready to drink cocktail can cocktails and stuff like that i mean all these things are like very hot and very big right now you love the the world of alcohol sure like you i think you're more of a a spirits guy when you're drinking anyway right so like is you are you are you as tapped into the trends in, in evolving like you were then as somebody who was at the leading edge of the craft beer movement? Are you still like looking at what's going on and, and, and does that excite you like it did then? It still excites me a lot. Um, I think that I, I don't look, I, I guess I don't personally do a lot of uh, NA or seltzer, that stuff, but I, I still in, enjoy following what's happening. I find all these trends very interesting. I find the marketing efforts very interesting, packaging what people are doing stylistically in in all categories of just the drinks industry as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. So what about just like the future of hospitality and food and beverage in general? Is are there things if there's a shift in the in our market, in our world of hospitality, like an improvement, what would that be in your eyes? Like what what, what can we be doing better? I think the I think the thing we could always be doing better is putting you know people first putting pride and egos aside not needing to be right what does that really matter there's so much that was, another, that was another chapter in uh will Gadara's book was yeah it? I, I think so i don't even know uh, probably it sounds like it i mean but you that's the, danny meyer for that though i'm pretty it, sure yeah I, I do remember someone saying one of those guys saying something about being right doesn't matter in some speech that they gave, but I can't remember sure if it was, it was Dan, Danny. Okay. Yeah. But I think that is a really important point. Like there is no such thing as really being right. I mean, we live in a divisive world right now. Like let's leave that crap out of restaurants right. and bars and hospitality. There's no place for rightness in hospitality. It's, those are practically like contrary words to each other. So being flexible, adapting to what's happening around you, making sure to take care of people so that people take care of other people. And like, these are, these are like the critical elements. I think I've, you know, said all that a few different ways, a few times in this interview, but I mean, that's what it all comes back to for us. What haven't we discussed up to this point? Something that you are just particularly interested in discussing something that is near and dear to your heart that you think would add value to our listeners. That 
it's important to recognize how much impact on society you can have in this business. So I think it's very easy for someone that works in a restaurant to think like, oh gosh, like doctors are saving lives and um, civil rights lawyers are protecting people's like, you know, existence. And there, there's, there's this thought that there's all these far more meaningful careers and that we're just slinging food and slinging drink. And like slinging food and drink is, is kind of part of how we pay the bills along with, you know, important hospitality. But like you can have so much of an impact on your community in so many ways that are deeply meaningful to people's lives. And that comes in a, such a variety of ways that get lost. So people don't always see it. Sometimes we don't take enough pride in working in this business because we're forgetting how much potential we have to impact the lives of, of our community near and far. And I mean, that can be... I mean, the really basic, obvious stuff, like helping someone get a job and work in this business that maybe other places would think like is not an employable person and, and helping shape them and coaching them into being something successful or they can earn this living and have a life they didn't imagine they'd have. But it can also be much farther reaching, like community outreach when you're working to support local charities or community organizations. I mean, we do a ton of stuff. We do you know, voter registration on site in election season. We've done, um, you know, like we, we have participated in our community in ways that have enabled me to feel like I really do matter. And I really am giving back and I'm not just here, uh, as a purveyor of alcohol, yeah, you know, and, and so, I would go as far as saying that that is what it should be about. Yeah. And I think people have lost sight and I, and I, I echo this a lot, but I, I think it's really important to look at the history of bars and, and restaurants, uh, on this country, and generally speaking, like, like, a lot of people don't know this, but like, like restaurants, bar, pubs, public houses, were like the center of towns. Like, and I'm not just saying like a, a place to go get a drink. It's like it's where shit happened. Yeah, it's where politics happened. It's where elections happened. It's where the news happened. It's literally where you would go get your mail. Like, like that. Like you needed a pub in a to start a town. It was a rule in a lot of places. Like you want to start your own town. Cool. Before you do that, you need a you need a public house. Yeah. Before a church, before a post office, before a town hall, you need a pub, a public house, and that was standard. And everything that happened in that community, it was the hub. It was the internet. It was your social life. It was your entertainment. It was everything. It's where shit happened in your community. It's where change happened. Revolution started in pubs. You yeah. know, and I think we forget that we can be that for our community. We can be where people come together to talk and to, to share ideas and to to improve their community. You know, and I, I would love more people to look at their establishments as a place for this to happen. You know, and what's going through your mind as I'm saying this? Oh, I agree. It, it warms my heart, really. And I, I, I love that. I mean, those those old tenants of how you start a new village ought to still exist. It should always still be around the pub. Um, you but get uh, you the contract for each one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Massive requirement. Yeah. But um, I, yeah, I, I love all that. And it's, uh, you know, that's the stuff that really makes me feel good. I mean, there's just so there's limitless ways in which we're impacting our society in doing this. Yeah. And that's like restaurant owners back in the day were mayors, right. governors. And like, they were like the, they ran towns. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think we could connect with that. I think we could reconnect with that. Um, anything else, any specialized knowledge, any, any pieces of wisdom that have not come out that you want to drop on us before we move forward. <laughs> that's a lot of pressure. I know. Right. I, oh man. Any, Specialized pieces of wisdom. I'm just trying to draw this this interview so I can finish this. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna relight mine but... later. 
Um, man, I, I don't know. I think you... Uh, well, I've loved the conversation, man. I yeah, really thanks. Um, lots of great stuff in this. We're going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be back to bust out a speed round. Recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. P. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. RestaurantUnstoppable.com slash RSP. This podcast is brought to you by Mies, the culinary operating system for food professionals. As a chef and restaurant owner for the past 20 plus years, Mies founder and CEO Josh Sharkey was frustrated that only the financial and inventory software was available in the kitchen. And while those are important, they don't actually address the process of cooking, training, production, collaboration, and execution. Whether you're a chef, mixologist, consultant, operator, or generally if you manage a recipe intended for professional kitchens, Mies was built just for you. Organize, share, prep, and scale your recipes like never before. Plus, get laser-accurate food costs and nutritional analysis faster than you could ever imagine. Chefs that use Mies have seen, on average, 70% reduction in training time for new staff, 20 to 30% less food waste and overproduction, and an average of thirty to fifty thousand reduction in annual cost of goods sold from their easy to use recipe engineering. Part of the magic in Mies is a built-in database of thousands of ingredients that have been tested by Mies chefs and registered dietitians to ensure all the yield loss when you prep an ingredient, as well as the unit conversions from volume to weight to pieces are built in, not to mention automated allergen tagging to ensure you have a consolidated view of allergens and nutrition. Get started by visiting getmes.com slash unstoppable. That's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash unstoppable. And as a listener of Restaurant Unstoppable podcast, you can get two free months of invoice processing by signing up today. Revolutionize the way work is done in your kitchen with Mies. We're back. The first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? 
Uh, in my case, it's just willingness to work. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I think also surrounding yourself with amazing people. It is and definitely that. Yeah. yeah, those two things are are my secret. And you know, definitely surround yourself with amazing people, and in all facets of your business, people who work for you and people you work with, people that you partner with. It's critically important. And you know, there I I'm not uh, a work life balance guy, and it's I respect people who are, and that's great. Um, but in my case, it's just an unrelenting willingness. <laughs> what is your biggest weakness? My unrelenting willingness. Yeah, I was curious about that. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, that's not... I'm told that's not super healthy, um, but I've been doing it for a very, very long time, and I've gotten by okay. What's one question you ask or thing you look for when you're growing your team, when you're trying to find people? What are you looking for? I look for people that... Or genuine. Um, I, I mean, when you're growing your team and you're interviewing a new hire or something, I, I think what I'm looking for is genuineness. Like, because yeah. I, I think you can teach a lot of knowledge, you can teach a lot of skill, um, but I think you can pick up on someone's energy pretty quickly. You, sometimes you make a mistake. I make mistakes, but oftentimes, more often than not, you're right about your gut feeling about is this person being genuine? Do they really like want to do this? And are they excited about being here? One piece of advice I've heard, which I love, is that whatever your gut feeling is about somebody is likely going to be the same gut feeling your guest has about that person. That's so good. that's good that in the back pocket, yeah. right? Um, what is your biggest challenge today? Um, rising costs of everything. How are you overcoming it? <laughs> We're overcoming it by uh, leaning into growth. I mean, those, those, I mean, we're trying to grow. We're trying to grow that top line so that we have the opportunity to keep the bottom line in check. Um, you know, the private event side of what I talked about is a key element of that. Got it. Uh, it's also a great way to market your business. Mm-hmm. You, you, pull, you pull people in with the events that people who n- wouldn't normally come to a brewery and they see what you're all about and they go, "Oh, we should come here for dinner sometime." Right? It's a great marketing tool as well. Um, what is one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team? A core value, a way to be. I mean, I've said this a lot about myself, but like we expect our team to put people first too. We, you got to put your coworker, you know, we got to put people first. So you, no matter what position you work in, you have to treat everyone around you with a tremendous amount of respect and care. What's one uncommon standard of service that happens here in your four, the four walls of your restaurants, but is not universal across the industry to go above and beyond guest expectation? Um, Underberg. Under what? <laughs> Underberg. It's a German herbal bitter digestif that comes in a little 20 milliliter bottle that we're big fans of that after you eat a big meal, it helps you feel better. I thought you said underwear. Underberg. So I can, I, sh- like, I can, I can I like, give you one. That? Okay. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. So is this like a, it's a little something extra that the guests aren't expecting. Yeah. I like that. Um, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or a restaurant owner? I, I'm, I'm sorry to use this answer, but honestly, the only book that I, I, I've really hit in recent years that had the most impact on me out of any hospitality book is definitely uh, Unreasonable Hospitality by Will Godara. Biggest lesson from that book that's impacted you the most? I think Will's um, inc- incredible desire to make people feel good resonated with me uh, and really kind of relit that flame under my ass that like, Hey, that's what I care about too. And I don't seek to do it with the level of refinement that he did at, you know, EMP or something like that. I, we can't, I mean, we don't have that ability or, or even the desire to do that, but you can apply that 
desire to be unreasonably hospitable to casual service too. That you can apply that at anything. You can apply that in any type of business. Yeah, you don't I love need that. pretentious food to show people you care. Yep. So yeah. that that is like that that was like so profound for me yeah. to read in his yeah. book. That book is great in audio too. Um, if if you go head over to audibletrial.com slash unstoppable, if you're not using audiobooks, it's a game changer. I drive across the country and consume so much content. Um, and if you're a busy restaurant owner and you don't have time to sit down or you don't have the energy to sit down and read, put it on while you're doing prep or whatever. Yeah. You know, it's, it's very powerful audiobooks. And um, that book is great on audio. Will I, should reads po- it. I should point out that that book was gifted to me by another mentor in a great Charleston restaurant or actually national restaurant icon, Mickey Baxt, who has recently retired from uh, Charleston Grill here in Charleston. But he has a long history in this business in many states and cities yeah. in the United States. And he gifted that to me. I didn't even, the book wasn't, I mean, I knew who Will was, but that book wasn't even on my radar to read. He gifted it to me and that it, it was life changing. If Will or anyone close to Will is listening to this episode, I would love to get you on the show to talk about that book. Just throwing it out there, putting it into the universe. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? Uh, stop and assess the meaning of what they're really doing. It's not like, is that steak cooked properly or like, is that Cabernet Sauvignon dry enough or whatever? I mean, like stop and assess how you're impacting the lives of the people inside of your building and the society around you. And are you doing something to make other people's lives better? Not just providing income. You got to have some money to make an okay life, but you know, like what else am I doing? And doesn't matter. Yeah. I know you're not a technology guy, but it's a question on my list. So I'm going to ask it anyway. What is one piece of technology you've recently adopted that's had a, a huge impact on communication, efficiency, operations, profitability? I'm sure <laughs> that twice. I, don't know. I mean, uh, I, man, my, maybe my Apple watch because <laughs> like it ensures that even if I miss a text message on my phone, like I can't miss it. And I, I get work texts to, like 24 seven. My team knows that even when I'm not here, there's no don't bother Scott rule. Yeah. Um, so I, I very much embrace that always available thing, which yeah. is, again, lack of work-life balance. There's no, <laughs> he's sleeping, it's 2 a.m., don't call him. They know that I want to be called. Yeah. So I'm curious. You said during the pandemic, you, you made some shifts, right? Oh, God. Did you lean on technology a lot more during the pandemic? <sighs> we did um, in a sense of we started... I mean, we sh- we pivoted like so hard. I know most restaurants did. Um, so we were never much of a to-go restaurant before. And all of a sudden we got on Uber Eats and Grubhub and we're using um, another like Geofence pickup app called uh, Swipe By and started pushing hard on like phone in orders and all this stuff. More recently we've ad- upgrade uh, adopted the toast online ordering in- to internalize it. The only one of those outside platforms we're still on is Uber eats, but we like, Oh, switched to doing a ton of, ta- we still do a ton of takeout business all the time. Like if you had told me that we were going to be an Uber eats restaurant three before the pandemic, I would have been like, what are you talking about? That's for freaking McDonald's or something. Yeah. You know what I mean? So has your top line revenue increased now that you kind of have no limit on how many people you can serve? Yeah, that's, that's helped. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we've really, really grown that. And we, and instead of some restaurants use that to get through and then pivoted back away from it. We didn't, we're like, let's just, let's keep doing let's all this. Turned let's on, let's do keep it all. On. Yeah. I mean, we didn't even used to be. So now we're open outside all day. The dining room is still dinner only, but we used to be dinner only restaurant wide. We added lunch service like outside. Um, 
we changed the our service style, the way everything. Did works. technology have a influence on that? I mean, I think like, uh, I mean, other than like the toast point of sale, not really. I mean, a lot of that was us. You know, it's really hard when you've done something a certain way for a great number of years. It's really hard to free your mind enough to say, let's overnight reinvent ourselves and come and be a different restaurant tomorrow in terms of like how we do more with less people, uh, staff wise. Yeah. How we, I mean, we, when everyone else, there was a period of time where you had to like shut down all on premise dining. Okay. Let's cut that out. What from, from reopening, there was just less available bodies, less available staff. Most people reduced hours. We expanded hours. We added lunch service outside. We added, you know, we kept all this takeout stuff. Resumed normal full service dining in the dining room, uh, dinner in the dining room. So, like, we leaned into it and repositioned the way we use people to accomplish all of that. You said your service child, your service style. Changed. Oh, it did. So how is it different? Well, outside, you know, it's not full service. You have to order at the bar. So outside we were, can, we can run outside with two people really. You have a, you have a courtyard attendant slash outside host that is like assisting guests and finding a spot, explaining to them how to order, keeping tables clean and bus and all that. And you have an outside bartender. The outside bartender is taking all the food orders. You have to yeah. place your you have to place your orders for food and drink at the bar, and then yeah. it's brought out to your table. So, like that, I mean, to run a space the size of our outdoor area with, I mean, two people is not ideal. I'd rather it be three or four, and it is on busy shifts. But like, we can do it with two. And like, look at how big it is out there. Yeah. That's insane. And that I think that's that the off. most potential with technology right now is is streamlining the ordering pro- process. Yep. To allow fewer people to do more. Oh yeah, and if you can, and, and it's 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 an easy transition to make and a, a pretty low cost transition to make. Oh yeah, for so sure. I think I think you're going to be seeing a lot more of that. Uh, this is the last question. Are you ready for it? I don't know. It's a doozy. <laughs> if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom, you could leave behind. For the good of humanity and your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Not just as applies to the restaurant, but life as a whole. Yeah. Like, wow. Pretend yeah. like if you have, you have kids, you're leaving someone behind for them. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's that you can make anything meaningful and that anything can matter and that you should kind of like follow your heart. And a lot of people say like, you know, follow the money or follow this or follow that. Like, to me, this is following my heart, but I wouldn't necessarily that, say that this is the right thing for anybody else. And I think you should follow. Uh, I see a lot of these business guys online say that that preach half of the same stuff I say, but then say like following your heart or following your passion is bullshit. You got to make money, and then you follow. Then you follow. Get your passions after that. <laughs> I don't believe in any of that. Like for me, this I just got lucky that this is my passion. Yeah. Um, but like you know, if my kid wants to be a painter or an actor and despite the struggles that come with that i believe adamantly that you should pursue that to no end follow your heart number one absolutely um two help people help people number three uh i mean i guess it kind of like falls into number two but i mean give back i mean we we're not here for us we're here for others and i think that has to be like a cyclical all-around thing and like we need to uplift each other. I'm. I hate. I hate how much hate there is in in the world, and how much divisiveness, and how much arguing. It's like we need to recognize the common good in all other people and find common ground. And yeah. and 
live and enjoy each other. Awesome. I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much, Scott. Uh, we wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. I really try to let the industry decide who I make an example of. Uh, so who do you respect and admire? Well, definitely, I would say Steve Palmer of the Indigo Road. It sounds like you may have spoken with him in the past. His name's familiar. I might not have. Uh, Jeremiah Bacon, also of the Indigo Road Restaurant Group. And then um, the uh, unofficial mayor of Charleston, Mickey Baxt, who used to be the GM of Charleston Grill, but has run and owned restaurants in a wide variety of places in the country. Beautiful. Steve, Jeremiah, Mickey, look up. I'm coming after you guys. I'd love to get you on the show. And how can we connect with you if we really enjoyed today's conversation? Uh, maybe we, we want to come work for you. Maybe we have questions about what you do. What's the best way to connect? I would love to hear from anybody. Um, I, my, I'm not a huge personal social media guy. If you at Edmunds Oast on Instagram, that will be relayed to me. But please email me directly. Um, my email is scott at edmundsost.com. Scott at edmundsost.com. That's E-D-M-U-N-D-S-O-A-S-T.com. I'd love to hear from anybody, anybody, even if you uh, just disagree with half the shit I said and want to <laughs> tell me I'm an idiot. Doesn't know what he's doing. And uh, this is episode 981. Head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 981. We'll have a, a summary of today's discussion over there as well as any tools, services, books recommended and how to connect with Scott all over there and uh scott uh just thank you so much for making time for us and your busy schedule uh for giving us an amazing cigar <laughs> to enjoy while we talk to you and for sharing your story and your knowledge there is no questioning you are unstoppable thank you cheers thank you there's another episode wrapped up here at restaurant unstoppable special thanks to our guest today scott shore for getting on the show getting vulnerable from the very beginning of my time with scott he was like you know man i'm not a huge restaurant guy i don't know the secrets of being a successful restaurateur the nitty-gritty the details the, the industry tricks and trades He's just a good person who has understood the significance of surrounding yourself with talented people and then giving them opportunity in just showing up in hustling and outworking people. Uh, and, you know, I just think that Scott is an inspiration. Also, I have to say thank you for that cigar, Scott. It was so good. I actually got two cigars from, from Scott and I enjoyed that second cigar on my way home and think i stopped in uh, myrtle beach so thank you for that uh and if you are enjoying this podcast and you want more like it please support this podcast there's tons of ways you can support the show one way you can support the show is by supporting our sponsors it's pretty simple if you guys use our sponsors they keep sponsoring the show and we don't let anybody sponsor the show so you can use our sponsors with peace of mind and thank you in advance for using our sponsors also anytime a tool or service is organically recommended through a conversation check the show notes to make sure there isn't a link in there because there's a good chance that's an affiliate and that's easy money for for us i'm, I'm gonna be simple it's, it's easy money we're gonna tell you about these tools and service regardless of we're earning a commission or not. So just use our links and support the show. Thank you in advance and check out our YouTube channel. If you have not yet head over to youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable. We have highlighted versions of this podcast, shorter versions of the two hours is too long for you. And we have like literally like 
versions of the show that are just shorts, like clips, like less than 60 seconds long. So if you're looking for that dose of inspiration, head over to youtube.com slash restaurant stoppable. Be sure to subscribe when you get there and then leave a five-star review. If you do like the full version of the podcast, the two hour long conversations, and you're listening to these on Spotify or iTunes, and there's an option to leave a review and five stars, please do that. It really helps with our ranking. And we can't say goodbye without saying thank you to the people who help make this podcast possible. Thank you to Sam Hall for the videography and social media. And thank you to Jerry Parisi at Sumatra Podcast for the copy and editing. I'm so grateful for my team. And uh, that's it for today. Until next time, peace out.